Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh, clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoors Podcast. We've got a scenic recording environment today on the back porch of Mr. Alan Summerford. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Oh, dude, uh, I appreciate you inviting us into your home. This has been awesome. Like, you have, for Alabama, dude, you have one of the most impressive trophy rooms i think i've ever seen for sure thank you very much it is kind of crazy I, <laughs> I didn't know that many drop time bucks existed <laughs> in the state of alabama yeah got, i got a thing for trashy ones so. <laughs> yeah. oh man you got jacob myers over here yeah it's like me and my women dude you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, just, no it's uh yeah i appreciate you inviting us up because so uh one of our mutual buddies uh kyle Leibarger, uh he originally when we talked we've known him for a couple years now he originally probably Six months ago, I said, man, you ought to get my buddy Alan on the podcast. And I'm like, okay, what's what's the story? He said, man, he's killed some really big deer, really impressive deer hunter, whole nine yards. He's like, y'all talk to him. And he finally got to meet you at the Weavers event uh, that we did, the, the meetup over there uh, back in January. And then got to meet up with you guys again at NWTF. And it was a blast kind of talking to you and kind of like learn a little bit more about you. But after spending some time with you here talking, I'm like, oh, now I'm like, you know, I was pretty excited about the podcast. And I was like, maybe we'll do a little bit on the land management side because you do a lot with, you know, both Kyle and uh, Land Legacy and also trying to do your own consulting now. But now I'm like, dude, we just got to talk straight deer tactics because I'm like, <laughs> there, there's way more here than even I had even imagined. Um, but to kind of kick us off, uh, Talk to us a little bit about like where are we at right here in the, in the state of Alabama, and like what is your, like your family's history like with this region of the state. So uh, we're in North Alabama in Morgan County, and uh, the Summerfords have been here uh, for forever, um, pretty much when the town was incorporated. But uh, basically, we've been uh, my great granddad. He started buying land around, and if he would find a piece of land that he would buy for cheap, and then whenever something would come available close by he would buy that he would sell that and buy that and so we kind of got our farms scattered across a long area of faultville and it's not all contiguous it's all just kind of just a block here or there but uh so we've been running cattle on it ever since then and uh so i'm like a fifth generation cattle farmer and born and raised right here and we've managed the farm to to raise cattle we sell herd sires and beef and uh, that's kind of just always been our thing and my granddad he actually had a country store he used to sell beef from the farm and he killed hogs and stuff and we would ship sausage up to chicago on the train in the winter time i mean we just been he was a he owned a general store he sold everything from socks to guns and everything in between but uh so we just always always been he's a really good businessman always been really really good about you know seeing things learning about things and knowing where to put his money yeah and so that's how we kind of got the farms down in south alabama lamb was going for extremely cheap back then back in the early 80s i guess and he found those little farms down there and paid almost nothing for them because they weren't worth a whole lot back then Mm -hmm. one of the farms i think pretty much the crp payments pretty much paid for the farm and uh so he's just really really business minded and made really really good investments and we actually ran cattle down there for several years um, probably 10 or 15 years until he got to where he was hard for him to go down there and take care of it and oversee it. Mm-hmm. But uh, since then, we've sold all the cattle from there, leasing one out to a cattle farmer, leasing another one out to a row cropper, and the other one just got set out to pine trees. Got you. So that, that's an interesting thing about you guys is kind of growing up in this like cattle farming family. And a lot of people think when you think of cattle farmers, like to me, deer hunters kind of go hand in hand with it. But it's not always like the highest quality deer hunting 
just because you, you're typically running cattle. So it's like, you know, if cattle are, are out there, you know, grazing pastures, it mixes a little bit of timber, but it's not, not like a ton of habitat for whitetails. What has been like y'all's family background getting into deer hunting? I mean, is that something that your granddad was real big into and your dad and everybody so, else? Yeah, so like everybody around here grew up quail hunting. And quail and rabbit is all small game. And uh, But my granddad, when we bought those farms in West Alabama, was loaded with deer, especially back then. There was just tons and tons of deer, way too many. But he started going down there to work, and then he would hunt in the afternoons. And it's kind of a funny story. My, my dad was trying to get in touch with him down there one day, and he couldn't get in touch with him. So he called um, my uncle. He said, hey, have you you know where Daddy is? And he said, uh, he's probably out hunting. He's like, no, nah, he ain't hunting. He goes, yeah, he's already killed like six deer this year. And he's like, he was going down there and hunting in the afternoons and everything. Well, whenever I got old enough, he started carrying me down there to hunt. And so he actually taught me you know how to shoot and hunt and all that kind of stuff and got me interested in it he was with me when i killed my first deer when i killed my first turkey and uh but he had never really hunted much his whole entire life either so he didn't really know the ropes about hunting he just we just had a lot of deer he would plant some food plots and stuff and we always saw a lot of deer and and we'd shoot them and and he never looked for a blood trail or anything he just walk in the woods go find them (laughs) (laughs) so with that kind of like background kind of like you know your granddad especially kind of being a big influence for you and kind of like learning from him but also kind of get on your own one interesting thing that we're going to talk about is like all these properties are different size properties. They're not all just like huge, huge, huge properties. Like one of your best properties you're talking to us earlier is only 40 acres and only 20% or only 20 acres of it's huntable, right. um, which is kind of interesting. Cause a lot of people think, you know, oh, you know, this guy's hunting cattle farms, you know, he's got hunt, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, a few thousands acres or more of big land masses that you can really go and put a lot of time in. But like, it's not necessarily the case on a lot of these properties. There's some properties I'm sure are a little bit bigger than others, right. but um, it, it's interesting kind of seeing how you've learned to hunt, these properties, but also even venturing on private or public land and having success on public land, especially on some pretty high pressure public land, and using what you've learned there on the private to apply on the public side. Um, getting over to talking about like some of the different properties and kind of like where we're at now, when you're talking about like habitat, can you talk about like the difference of habitat on all these different properties that y'all have, but also like how they all differ, but also how the deer hunting differs on all of them? Right. So Morgan County, it's a little more open. Um, about the only place you really have much habitat is where it was either too wet to farm or you know for whatever reason you just can't get there can't really get into it it's not really good for anything else but habitat and most of that is just trees it's just timber Um, and so a lot of very little small pockets of place that a deer would even live and you can kind of use that to your advantage in some ways because those smaller spots right there for instance, that one farm with 20 acres, I've got one stand on it. I do not hunt anywhere else on the farm. I hunt that one stand when the wind's perfect. I've got it set up. I've got one little food plot in there, good bedding all the way around it. And uh, I'm very, very picky about how I hunt that stand. I won't hunt it, but maybe one or two sits a whole entire year. Mm-hmm. But I know what day to go and sit on that on that property. Um, the other farms, you know, one farm's a row crop farm. It's a really, really big farm. And a little over half of it is all row crop, and which is, um, you know, you think it's really, really good for the deer, but actually we actually had bigger deer on it when it was a cattle farm um, because we had, you know, a whole entire farm. And it was a cattle farm where it's not like what you see here. Everything's green and pretty and manicured. And, you know, you can see all the way across this whole place. If a deer was walk out there at 500 yards, you could see it. Down there, it wasn't like that when it was a cattle farm. A lot of native grasses, a lot of weeds, a lot of just, you know, brushy-type fields. 
which is also really, really great deer habitat. As long as you knew where the cows were, you just hunt around them. And uh, But now it's row crop, which a lot of the row crop is just plowed under dirt and uh, in the whole winter time, they plant some of them cover crops, which is a good food source. So I don't really have to plant food plots on it anymore, but it changed it a little bit. And you have to really work on your habitat a whole lot more when it's row crops because the row crops aren't growing your deer, the habitat is. And then you've got the other farm down there is all a big pine plantation. So it's a totally different thing. You gotta do some burning and some, and some habitat work in that. And it's a lot of food plots. Um, then we got a farm in Giles County and it's a timber farm and it's got a lot of little open fields and stuff in there and i've done a lot of management in the timber has some of the biggest prettiest wild oaks you could ever think of great places to bow hunt but let me tell you cut your wide oaks because it'll make it even better um, now i kept a few little sections of wild oaks that i wanted to look like that to be open and be pretty and everything but when i started cutting it and make it a little brushier a um, little more open, running fire through there. The turkeys exploded and the deer got bigger. Mm-hmm. My food plot program has gone downhill because I haven't worried so much about putting everything in a food plot since I realized food plots aren't what's growing your deer. It's your habitat. And so uh, so that farm's a little bit different. And uh, but all in all, you still hunt the same way, but you just have a little bit different thing. You have to be a little more careful on a small farm than you do a big farm. Mm-hmm. You can't st- take any chances on a small farm to bump a deer i mean if you bump him off he's off on your neighbors or who knows where so you have to be super super careful whereas on a bigger farm you may can get away with a deer seeing you drive in or something like that he's still going to run away from you and be on your farm but he's not going to leave you as as quick as one on a small farm will yeah i wanted to ask about just to lay the groundwork a little bit more when we just walked around in your house and saw your bucks man it's ridiculous i mean the mass on these deer it's the kind of stuff that you go and see at like a like a deer show where there's outfitters advertising for like a kansas hunt and you just got these giant based huge bucks that's what you're killing here in alabama like very like high level deer for alabama um and you talked a little bit about here in morgan county you got like a low deer density and the deer haven't been here as long um and and that might be a factor can you just talk about that a little bit like the deer densities in the different places you hunt like maybe here versus pickens county versus giles county tennessee so i remember seeing the very first deer track here in morgan county um i was about 15 years old which i'm 39 now but uh i remember running home telling my dad i found a deer track i mean a deer track and it was probably just a doe and probably just traveling through um but the deer kind of started populating this area a little bit and that was when we had the absolute best hunting there was super low deer density hadn't been deer here since the 70s and so the habitat actually had a lot of the things that the deer would select for but hadn't been over browsed so these deer were growing really really rapidly they were growing big and a lot of them and it's like there wasn't a lot of deer but when they when you had a deer he had potential to to be the best that he could be and uh but you still gotta wait kill them when they're five don't don't shoot these three-year-old really really good deer wait let them let them mature let them get big because then they start expressing all those really cool genes that you don't see when they're three years old drop tines drop tines drop tines galore <laughs> in this house let me tell you <laughs> and so you just gotta you just gotta be patient let that deer you know get to the age 
be careful about hunting. Don't don't mess him up when he's three. Don't don't hunt him when he's three. You know, let him let him feel secure in there, and then he's going to be there when he's five because he's always felt safe there. Mm-hmm. And well, and another thing, one reason I bring that up is because there might be some people who are like, "Well, he's got all this great private land, and uh, it's it's high dollar private, but it's really not." It's it's really how you're managing the deer and how you're hunting the places and how you treat it. Because we even have some guys on public ground who are down closer to where we're from who kill deer in similar caliber to these deer for down there. Uh, and they're passing three and a half, four and a half year old deer on public ground, on high pressure public ground. And but and they have that, that higher level of success that nobody else is having. So it's not that you have just like incredible, ridiculous properties. It's it's kind of the work that you're putting in and how you're hunting the properties and, and what you're taking off of those properties. Like you're very intentional about all the stuff. It's not happening by accident, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So like, you, you know, I've hunted a little bit of public land too. So like you've got, you've got two things. If you're hunting private land, you have to be doing the work to get these deer you can't just go show up plant a little food plot and be consistent at killing giant deer you've got to do the work of the habitat you've got to you've got to get your fields in order most fields have got a lot of fescue and other non-native grasses and stuff in them that's doing nothing for your deer um you got to get your timber in order most timber and like a lot of the, the the consults we go on the timber is junk like it may be some good species in there but it's not feeding wildlife it's 20-something-year-old cutover that's grown up into really, really thick extended trees, and there's literally nothing on the forest floor. Or even if you've got great big hardwoods, big, beautiful hardwoods, I mean, on a great acre year, you're producing 200, 250 pounds of food for a year, and that's it. So you've got to cut some trees. You've got to open it up. You've got to get, run some fire, and, I mean, that's that's my biggest tool is fire. I run fire through everything, and... Uh, so if you're going to be on public land, you do the work scouting. You do a lot of work scouting to kill a big deer. If you're going to do it on private land, you got to do a lot of work to the habitat. Yeah, I love that. That's a great. That's actually a great kind of segue into the rest of this conversation too. But I want to I want to talk about your tactics hunting these places because it's pretty interesting and it sounds like you're extremely careful and meticulous about how you hunt these properties and like i'm just looking at this property we're on now and it's it's very gentle terrain like you're not hunting harsh terrain features or anything like that it looks like the low spots out here where you got the trees and i'm assuming those woodlots are pretty open unless you've done something to them those those woods are fairly thick right there Mm -hmm. um there's a lot it's it floods a lot so like it looks here from its closed canopy and but if you actually walk in there it's waist high grasses and and herbaceous type stuff so like it's got a lot of open areas in it um but yeah so there's the the farm down in the the row crop farm i was talking about down in pickens it literally is flat as a table just about i mean it's there are no terrain features that you can really use there's a ditch here or there you're using the structure of the land so like you may have some areas of you know overgrown type field um brushier field then you got some areas of of hardwoods and so you're using all these little funnels and stuff like that using the the grasses and and they'll they'll work the side of a the slightest little bit of a slope in a field they'll kind of work around just like they would do in the timber that's in you know big hill country or big you know mountainous type terrain they'll use those same features it's just they're very very minute um little ditches and creeks and stuff like that are huge um but you know like i said it's same thing you can manipulate the habitat to kind of draw them where you want them to be um use the the openness of the row crops to 
kind of know where they're not going to be and that kind of thing. I want to mention this just early on the podcast because you're talking about cutting timber and talking about kind of the tactics, but like the whole idea, if you own property, like cutting more timber than what most people would think of and like whitetail hunters are very scared to cut timber. A story I've got, or it's interesting is I've got an uncle, a great uncle of mine who's got a a big lease on an island in the Mississippi river. And, uh, traditionally they'd kill 130, 140 inch deer out there, but it was typically very, very open. It's a very large property, uh, like 3000 acres. Um, I think they lease like 1800 of it. Um, some of it has road crop on it, but, and they barge, you know, equipment over cause it floods out every year, but it was big open timber and they had a storm come through. I think it was a couple of tornadoes, knocked down a ton of timber and then loggers came in and cleared out a bunch of stuff that was all tore up and cleared out a lot of the acreage. And, some of the best deer hunting they ever had was the six to seven years after that when it was all cut deer numbers went up but the quality of deer that were spending time there that was foraging all that because he was talking about like back then like you couldn't hang a tree stand that he was walking in my grand uncle's walking in and this is i'm talking this is only like 15 years ago walking in with a step ladder like a six foot step ladder to lean up against some smaller shrub trees so he could get up above some of that tall grass and brush and stuff to hunt and he's killed 160, they've killed 160, 170, 180 inch deer out there consistently over that seven, eight year period. And then it's kind of slowed back down as it's kind of matured out. And there's less and less of that forage because they don't run fires on the property. Um, they haven't cut anything else. Uh, and it's kind of aged back out. But they had a golden age of, you know, six, seven, eight years because of the flooding. The flooding would knock some of that stuff that grow back up and knock it back down yep. and grow back up every spring or every summer. And it was unbelievable hunting for a long time. And I brought it up to him after the fact, this was probably a year or two ago about like, cause he was, they were like disheartening or disheartened when everything was cut down and, and trees got knocked down these huge monster oaks, but just how good the hunting was. And he kind of opened his eyes about like hunting, not only these thick areas, but having all that native habitat growing back up and it was producing just monster whitetails. And those deer not only just came over there to rut, but would spend time out there during the dry periods of the year when it wasn't flooded out. Cause I mean, that, that island flood, it had eight to 10 foot of water across the whole island yeah. in the late spring, early summertime period. And, um, uh, just how much huge deer it was producing for, you know, through a, a short period of time. And it just makes, it makes you wonder with more and more whitetail guys, especially like what you're talking about doing how, like when you open that canopy up, not only are you like having the habitat, but it also, a lot of bow hunters are like, man, I can't hunt that. Like, it's it's not huntable if I cut a lot of the timber. But it's like being strategic about how you do everything and, and be able to still hunt it, whether it's off the ground, whether it's through an elevated stand, a tree stand, saddle, whatever, but still, you know, have that open ground that those deer can truly thrive on. Yeah, that open ground is key because, like, you know, you can do it with a pine plantation. You you know, it's it's usually good for two or three years, and then it, it gets staged out again. So, you just got to repeat fire like you've got to have or a disturbance it may not be fire it may be hack and squirt or it may be you know cut some trees with a chainsaw i mean you don't really run fire i can't run fire through these hardwoods behind the house it's all bottom land i mean if you ran a fire through there you would kill every tree in there and it's not really made what fires to do but it actually floods and so the flood is the disturbance that this part needs to keep it more open it kills a lot of trees out beavers come in and they'll make a little meadow and so you've got to keep repeating that disturbance. So like the clear cut initially is great for three to five years and then it's not. And so you repeat the disturbance. Now kind of getting to like what Andrew's talking about with like the hunting strategy and everything on a lot of these different properties. Uh, one thing I think we can dive in pretty early on is the annual patterns on some of these properties yeah. and how important annual patterns are for 
even in some of these small properties of like the timing of when it's absolutely critical for you to hunt after you've done all the work and everything and the habitat's perfect how these annual patterns has helped you kill just a ton of these huge deer because you've talked about when we were upstairs a lot of these big deer some of them have came out of the same property sometimes out of the, a lot of them out of the same tree during the exact same few days of the season and it's not a huge property so like what have you kind of learned when it comes to like annual patterns and timing the rut and also maybe even paying attention to the does and the habitat that's really played a, a huge part of some of that success especially on some of these smaller properties right so one property i probably had the most success on um, it's basically a big bedding thicket and it's got a food plot that that's right on the edge of the bedding thicket and then it's kind of like open back behind it well my access is through the open part of it so the the, the bedding thicket never it never sees anybody whatsoever it's super super secure um it's i manipulate it you know every two to three years with fire or, or whatever but it's uh i learned when during the week of thanksgiving is 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 the time around here that uh i find the front that has the wind that i'm looking for and i hunt that day i like i see it in the forecast i'll know it's coming two or three days before and i remember one year like the the biggest one up there like i was i was hunting that deer and uh i knew it was going to be on black friday my wife was like hey i really want to go black friday shopping I'm like <laughs> oh I've been waiting for this day. Like, this is the day to kill him. Because I know after that, I have a hard time finding them. Like, they just are, they just don't daylight. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, I really know this is the day. Should I even ask her? I'm like, uh, like, honey, please, please, please look. I will do whatever. Can I please, please hunt tomorrow morning? She's like, okay, fine. You can hunt. Sure enough. Shot him at seven forty-five. <laughs> I was, I was like, I'm only going to hunt to about eight thirty, and I was literally, I was like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, there he is. So like, you know, the, I knew that that was the week. I knew that that weather pattern was the pattern that I needed, and it happened. And nearly every single deer our kill is within a day or so of each other, but it's always on the same weather pattern that you're going to get during that week. Be in the tree that day. Make sure you don't mess it up. Now, how long has it taken you to learn that specifically on, like, say, that property? And, well, and, what and was... all the properties are kind of the same way. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something you learn overnight. It's just, you know, watching deer, hunting a farm, knowing, like, watching what they do during this time. Then, like, okay, then breaking it down. All right, well, in this area, I get pictures. Like, pictures are a huge thing. If I ever get a daylight picture of a buck, I've got a computer in there. It's, it's all that that computer does. When I get a daylight picture of a target buck, it goes in that computer. If I can find that pick, that buck when he's two to three years old, a lot of times he will keep that same pattern when he's five or six. And sometimes it's actually, he's, his pattern actually kind of shrinks down a lot of times when they get older. They, their patterns a lot of times, they'll daylight more when they get older, like really old, but it's in a smaller area. And if your core area is where he daylights, you know that he's been there these days and th those kind of fronts and i don't keep up with it like the other guy with the trail camera stuff i'm not that crazy about it but if he daylights in that week and as i start noticing patterns like well hey this week they're starting to daylight that's going to be the time to be in the woods and it's usually like right on the edge of the the pre-rut kind of what he's talking about those first does mm -hmm. coming in heat um that's when those bucks are there showing up uh, 
that that podcast you had like last week or so about the guy with the Shane cameras. Parker, yeah, finding yeah. those does. I don't go that crazy extreme. Like I don't even run cameras in the summer very much. I wait till about August to throw some minerals out, see, take an inventory, see what's there, and then know where I'm going to chase. But like, it is it's crucial. Like that those high quality bedding cuts, high quality bedding areas are going to have the best bucks in the area. Uh, I want to dive into that a little bit deeper. One thing I'm wondering about is how you determine where you're putting your trail cameras and and how much pressure you're willing to put on the deer with those trail cameras. But also the other thing, when you're talking about a wind direction, are you talking about just a wind direction you can access and hunt cleanly or a certain wind direction that that buck is coming through on? Access and hunt cleanly. I'm super, like, I will not, I don't care if it's the right week. I don't care if I know the deer's daylight and if I can't access it, right i will not hunt it mm-hmm. there are there are there are places that are really really great places that i don't my my number one spot in tennessee this year i never sat a single time my best food plot my best area the best travel corridor i never sat at a single time because every time i was up there the wind was not quite perfect yeah and so i i'm super super careful about access super super careful about my wind i mean one of those deer up there i was giving you all a story like I, my wife had almost killed the deer the year before and then I didn't even hunt him again for the rest of the year I just let him just sit in there be patient next year I started getting pictures of him like yeah I really want to kill this deer I was actually hunting the deer I saw the deer and I was supposed to have the right wind I saw the deer and my wind was starting to shift it was about mid-morning it started to shift and while the deer i could still see the deer that's another thing about access you want to be able to get in and out of your stand without deer seeing you well i could absolutely do this saw the deer he's heading towards where my wind's going to blow how far was he he was about 85 yards and i knew the last thing he was headed he was going back to bed down i knew the last thing i wanted was him to go where his safe spot is and to smell me so as soon as I saw that deer heading towards that way, I got out of my tree and hauled it out of there as fast as I could go. Came back a week later and killed him, coming out of that bed and thicket. That was a perfect segue because I was about to bring that up. I was about to bring up that exact story. So you got eyes on the deer, saw him going to bed, and literally jumped out of your tree and ran off. Got so out he of wouldn't there. beat you or Absolutely. wouldn't spook you. I wanted him to know that he was safe there because he felt safe there. He'd been feeling safe there for two years. The last thing I want to do is mess it up because I was probably not going to kill him. He wasn't coming in the trail I wanted him to come down. He's probably not going to be in bow range. So most people would just keep sitting there, mm-hmm. maybe try to call at him, or I didn't even call him because I knew if I did call at him, how he was going to try to come to me if I called was going to just completely mess me up. Mm-hmm. And so, like, my wind wasn't perfect. It was supposed to be. It was forecasted to be. For whatever reason, it changed, and it was not what it was supposed to be. I was like, uh-uh, got to get out. Yeah, and this is an interesting subject for me because, like, we come from a public land background, and so a lot of the stuff we do is kind of like you talked about earlier. We we hammer down on the scouting, and then when it comes time to hunt it, we're, like, probably a lot more aggressive than we should be in a lot of cases, and we burn a lot of spots, but we just move on to the next one. Because you got tens of thousands of acres. You got, you yeah. got all the spots you need, but uh, but I'm, I'm in a club this year, and I joined it last year, put a year of history into it, and then just joined it again last week. Uh, so I can continue to build history. So I'm having to kind of unlearn that because I'm like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't go bombing right through the middle of that thicket, you know, and hang up in the middle of it. So I'm curious about how you view putting pressure on your deer 
especially when it comes to trail cameras and stuff like that like how are you determining how close you want to put your cameras to the bedding you know and what's the process of figuring out a place where you can get to that point of i know that at this spot on this weather front during this time period i have a very good chance of seeing a target buck right here yeah so i'm complete opposite of this other guy about <laughs> he was talking about checking cameras every eight days like oh gosh i don't even have time to go check my cameras that that often there's no way cell cameras are great they have completely changed the game for me but i still am not very i don't go hard in like i've always kind of felt like i don't really want a trail camera exactly where i'm going to hunt because i don't want the deer to avoid the trail camera mm-hmm. i do believe that deer avoid trail cameras all I need to do on those areas, because I don't even scout them. I never scout on those. My, my, my spots I've hunted for years, I never, ever, ever, ever scout. Because I just know how the deer are going to act. I know what they're going to do. All I need is the trail camera to take a picture of him, here or there. I don't need it to tell me exactly when he's there or anything like that. I just need to know he's in the area. If he's in the area, I've got the plan laid out that he's going to use. I've created the habitat in a in a way that he... I know what he's going to do when he's feeding. I know what he's going to do when he beds. I know what he's going to do during the rut. I need to know what travel corridor I need to get on. That's about all I need to know. I just need to know that the deer's there. So when I get a picture of a, a big buck that I'm targeting that I want to kill, I just need to know he's in the area. That's all I need. And and then I hunt it appropriately, very, very carefully. I don't want my wind blowing in this thicket ever, 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 ever. I make sure my access doesn't mess him up. There's a lot of people may have the deer, they've got the the plan, but then their access messes them up. Or, you know, they're busting deer in and out of their stand, and that messes your whole hunt up. I mean, around here, you don't have very many deer. You better not spook a doe, because that might be your only chance. Yeah. Uh, Well, so you you gave us some stories upstairs on a couple different bucks that you shot out of the same exact tree or, or the same spot maybe during the same year or maybe like over multiple years how did you figure out that spot like what led you to be like this is the spot that i'm going to be able to hunt for years to come like the scouting of that year the camera placement the hunts like how did you how did you kind of form that hypothesis and then and then use it for years to come well it's not really a a a set thing that happens with one of them was just like when i first got the property um the one that's small property well there was a spot for a food plot it had been row crop or whatever and uh, i was like man this is a pretty neat little area for a food plot and i didn't hunt it right in fact there was a giant that i didn't kill because i didn't know how to hunt back then and i uh, went up finding the sheds and stuff but like uh just just i put the food plot there and then um it was kind of all just sort of, you know, old open pastures around some a little travel corridor. Well, that, I just got lucky. It just happened to be a great travel corridor. But then over the time of learning how to hunt and learning what to do, I started making things. All right, well, I need this little area to be thicker. I need I need some bedding right here. I need some bedding right there. So it's got two or three little bedding areas right in the middle of this corridor, and the food plot's just right there too. And the food plot's not a beautiful food plot. But it's it's a uh, it's just little strips and stuff going through some tall grass, lots of uh, like edge feathering around it. So it's not just goes from straight big open canopy timber straight down to beautiful manicured food plot. It's it's sort of a brushy little food plot, but I can sort of walk up into it. And I like what Adam he always talks about. He said, you know, like on the on the um, 
home improvement show, you know, Mr. Wilson, he's always, he's got his, his <laughs> eyes. It's all you can see looking over the fence. That's how I want to hunt my spots. I want to be able to come in there and access it to where all I'm doing is looking over the fence into where the deer are. And then when I leave, they don't even know I was there. I walk back out. They, I, I can walk out with deer on the field. They don't even know I was there. Mm-hmm. So if I don't kill, I'm not spooking them. Gotcha. We've, we, we've got to talk about how you do your stand sets because that's something that's interesting to me is you're talking about you're setting up spots that you can get in and out cleanly where the deer can't see. Can you give us some examples of how you go about doing that and what some of the different setups look like to allow you to be able to do that? So terrain features are great. So if you've got a hill that, you know, you can look down into a food plot or, or whatever, if you can use the terrain to your advantage, stay below the hill and into your stand. If you want to look right back there, there's a shooting house. Well, there's a great big food plot right there that you, I know y'all can't, y'all, the listeners can't see it, but there's just a little bit of a rise right here. All right, that food plot is, is all right there to the right. When I walk down this fence row, there's a cedar tree that's right beside the shooting house. I walk right there straight towards the shooting house with the cedar tree blocking it. I can get up in that stand with deer on the food plot and they never see me. And you look right over here, if you was just to walk straight towards the shooting house, well, mm-hmm. you walk across right across the right, the top of the ridge and every deer in the food plot or even in the timber that's just sitting there bedded next to the food plot can see you. Mm-hmm. So you can use terrain features. You can, I mean, a lot of people use switchgrass to screen their uh their access in and out i've never done that i don't i'm 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 not against it but just use what you got you can just cut down some trees um make it a little bit brushy right there in front of your shooting house um different things like that i i actually left a bunch of sweet gums in one spot which i hate sweet gums for habitat but hey when they're all thick and brushy that spot that I've killed so many bucks out of, it's literally a sweet gum thicket that I just keep bush hogging and it's stump sprouts and it's just gnarly and deer don't want to walk through it. But I can walk right down beside it and slip up in my tree and in and out of it with a deer never knowing I'm there. I know the deer aren't going to be there and I can get in and out quietly, easily. Watch deer out there. If a deer's on the field and I'm ready to go, I can walk out. They never even know I, I was there. Now, do you do, do you do anything preparation on the ground to allow you get in and out more quietly like do you, do you come that. through like a, with a blower or anything like that sometimes i do not a lot of times i'm bush hogging the path um i want it to be kind of grassy you know or a trail or something like that a lot of a lot of my fields i'm coming in from fairly open areas mm-hmm. so you're you're kind of coming through like what one of our past guests um well my josh driver josh driver talks about negative terrain like like terrain or habitat that deer aren't going to be in during daylight hours yes. so he talks about like the open timber big open bottom stuff like that using it for access this pasture right here yeah, yeah. like it's like it's, that fence row is exactly what he's but talking it's about. like matching negative terrain or negative habitat where deer aren't going to be at but making it where they can't see you from that positive habitat like the yeah. positive terrain where they're going to be bedded at because again if you walk right across this open field if they're bedded on the edge of the food plot or the edge of the field they can still see you so still having some way to hide yourself slipping into that spot and getting up in that tree nice and clean without being seen and that's the big advantage especially on like private land is you can spend so much more time thinking and analyzing how can i get in and out clean without screwing this up and you have to take that time because you can have the absolute best food plot i mean corn beans with greens all up underneath underneath it you can have the best deer but a lot of people mess up their target buck because of their access 
It's like they've done so much work to prepare for that. They've done everything that they needed to do. They've got the deer there. They've got the pictures of him there in daylight, and they go hunt it, and like, well, he just don't ever show up. <laughs> well, guess what? You probably just spooked that deer. The deer probably smelled you walking in or saw you walking in, or you spooked something walking in that wasn't him, but he was probably right there close. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even that doe or four-point that's out there on the food plot that sees you that you think, well, it wasn't him, well, he might have been 50 yards inside the woods watching. You know, it's hilarious. When you drive up here on I-65 going north and you come across the river and everything, you'll see these these tower stands and the, these shooting houses in, I mean, 200 yards from any tree line, no cover yeah. around. Smack and, in the middle and I'm of like, the field. How, I'm like, how in the hell are you getting in or out of that without deer seeing you? And you can't. It's impossible. And it's like, that is the funny thing. Unless you have somebody like, you know, you're on an active farm where you can drive trucks around and stuff like that, and you could have somebody come pick you up and drop you off in a vehicle. Maybe deer get a little used to that. But still, it's like <clears throat> people will set up. And I've seen this, and I've been guilty of it too, on some of our private land, uh, like our family farm in Bibb County, is – you have spots set up that or once you get in it, it's great, but it's like the access sucks because you either have to walk by really good potential bedding locations or you're so exposed that when you have to leave or get to it, especially whether it's at, at, in, in the dark or you're coming in and out during the daylight, whatever it is, like you're going to get seen by deer and like maybe like that buck doesn't see you, but like you said, you're educating the does and the does aren't acting right. And the does are like maybe uh, staying away from that location until right at dark or even just after dark. You're, you're hurting yourself from a shot opportunity standpoint. And that could be from a tree stand set up in like where you have terrible access and you have to either go busting through a lot of brush or you're just a super open right next to a quality food source or and bedding cover. Um, and I think another thing that people don't, take consideration of especially during boses and you're a big bow hunter is having stand sites set up in areas with like say a bunch of oaks are dropping a lot of times those deer will bed underneath those dropping oaks like if the water oaks are dropping a lot of times that buck may be bedded there he may have a little brush pile something close by the hill bed and if you're walking through a wide open oak stand to try to go climb up a tree there's a good chance even though you can maybe see 150 yards or something through that cover there's a good chance a deer could see you and skirt out the backside that you never see and then completely potentially ruin that spot or at least ruin that hunt from any other deer coming in there, especially if it goes blowing back through a bunch of other bedded deer. Yeah. Well, and like those areas like that, you know, you want to walk like a deer. You want to sound like a deer. You don't want to walk with the the gait of a human when you're walking into some of those areas um, that are kind of marginal. Like timber, like those, those two bucks that were um, killed the same stand on the, on the different farm that, that that's a timber spot and my conditions that i like to hunt it is literally right after a rain in the morning where the next morning's going to be 30 degrees that's the conditions to kill them kill them in there it's like they they bed down because they moved pretty good that night they bed down and then they get up early in the morning and start traveling or pushing does and stuff and i've slipped in there quietly and uh i mean there's there's a lot i could do to make all of these spots better, I just don't have time. Yeah. But when you take time to make your your best spots completely perfect, flawless, they're 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 just they're just gangbusters. I mean, it's it's just it's like you got the perfect laid out plan, and then you just go to execute it. 
Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spurmaster and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spurmaster call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. I think another important thing that we can talk about and really hit home on, and this kind of goes from both public and private land perspective, if you have a really good spot, and some of our, a lot of our more successful podcast guests that we have on the hunt publicly and do the same thing is they are very strategic of when and how they go about hunting certain spots. It's not like, you know, if you have a really good rut spot, they're not going in there during bow season and trying yep. to hunt it seven or eight times. It just trying to get lucky that that buck's coming, coming, coming through that location or like a really good, like say they have a doe group. We've got a couple of guests that come to mind, like have a really good doe group that they know pretty consistently when those does come to heat they're not going to try to go in there and shoot a doe in their early bow season yeah they're going to shoot a doe somewhere else yep. that they're not worried about rut hunting and they're going to wait for that spot to get prime and then they're going to go hunt it a few times and capitalize on that buck and i think that's a huge part especially on private land especially if you don't have a ton of acreage when i say ton of acres if you don't have more than 500 acres it is super easy to burn some stuff up very easily if you're hunting every weekend or every couple you know a couple days a week and you're bouncing around from spot to spot before it gets really, really good. And that kind of comes back to like the difference between really good rut hunters versus the kind of guys that can kill them outside the rut. The, some of the guys that kill them outside the rut have certain scenarios or situations or they understand how to hunt an area that lets them capitalize on other parts of the season. You've killed some deer early bow season, also late yeah. in the season as well. But it's like, especially if you're trying to target <clears throat> deer during the rut, it's like you've got to have the conditions right, the right wind, and, and also on a small property – almost like let your neighbors pressure everything around you 
and wait for it to get good and those deer get sucked on their property, whether it's 20 acres yep. or whether it's 2,000 acres, wait for it to get really, really good and go in there and capitalize on it. And it's one of those things that's like, you know, if you're a kind of guy that you want to hunt five days a week, if you had the opportunity to do it, go hunt a lot more public. Or yeah. get in a huge lease, seven, eight, ten thousand acre lease that you can bounce around and do stuff on. But if you got some smaller properties or you just don't have that much time to hunt, it's like scout religiously, understand your area, but also understand how you can hunt it during the rut and then wait for that time to get right and then go in there and then as you know, guys like uh Andre DeQuisto talk about, surgically remove that buck from the herd. Yes. Like it's like a scalpel knife. You're coming in there, you're cutting him out and you're not doing anything else. That's right. And like, you know, you're gonna go hunting on you say you take a weekend to go hunt. Well, the weather doesn't always cooperate. Maybe you get the same exact wind the whole entire time and it's not the right wind to go hunt your best spot. Well, take some does out. I mean, we harvest does like crazy. My little boy, I turn him loose. Like anytime he wants to shoot a doe, <laughs> buddy, we're shooting a doe. Um between the two of us, we killed twenty eight this year. And I pretty much let him shoot a doe every time he wanted to. And I wanted him to get used to, you know, a, a an experience to, to know, like, hey, when a deer comes in, this is how we act. This is what we do. And so, like, he's comfortable shooting. So, it's like, you know, I, I love taking him hunting with me because he's, he's a lot of fun. But, like, I want to set him up for success. Like, I want to let him shoot some does. I want him to feel comfortable pulling that trigger. I want him to get, feel comfortable with everything instead of, all right, let's go kill a big buck. Put all that pressure on him. Make him feel like he's got to make the perfect shot because this is the only chance you're going to see this buck. Well, when he's already done this with several does, well, he walks in there and that buck comes out, buddy. He's ready. Bam. He's got the deer down. Like So, like, use those days that aren't great. Maybe do habitat work. Uh, that's what I do a lot of times. It was the rut down in West Alabama. I knew I wasn't going to have very many days to hunt, but it was going to be a really good burn day. And I said, you know what, buddy, we're not going to hunt today. We're going to go burn some fields off. Because I know that sometimes it's better to do habitat work on those days that are just marginal or not that great than to go try to chase some buck that's probably not going to show up with 60-something degrees and warming temperatures and, you know, the the conditions weren't right. Um, Use those days to do your habitat work. Or use those days to go shoot some does. Most properties have way too many on them. Have you some spots set aside that, hey, this is not really a great buck spot. Man, go whack your does there. Take them out of the herd. Reduce the competition. You know, reduce some mouths to help your, your bucks reach their potential. Yeah, yeah. we even have, uh, like I keep drawing it back to some public land guys who talk about the exact same thing where if if they don't, they have a, a spot where they have a certain weather condition that they need to go hunt it, and they might go two years and not hunt that spot because it just never lines up but then year three they get it and they go in there and they kill a really big deer oh yeah and you but that's why you got to have 10 15 20 plus spots that you can choose from you know so being a public land guy so you don't kind of pigeonhole yourself or whatever um I, i wanted to drill down a little bit further on travel corridors and what that kind of means to you because i've heard you mention it several times already um you kind of touched on a little bit earlier, but what are the travel corridors that you're focusing on? Like, what consists of a travel corridor? Okay, so basically, um, my favorite travel corridors are when you've got several little bedding areas, and you can kind of slip into the side of it where bucks are going to be cruising looking for doses. When I'm hunting the rut, I want to be in the woods. I want to be in something close to something thick. Um, like when I hunt public land, 
my travel corridor was a whole bunch of blowdowns. It was like a straight line wind came and mm. blew down a whole bunch of oaks in a line. And this line went for 300 yards, and then it's like it made a T, and there was oaks going the other way. Well, I got slipped right into the edge of that T. I want to know where – I want to be right, right there where the bucks are going to be looking for does because does are trying to get away from the bucks. They don't like the bucks. They don't <laughs> want them chasing them all the time. They want somewhere to – run in slip out and the buck have to look for them to where they can get away and i don't know if you've ever watched you know a buck chasing a doe in one of those thickets like that you know they're they're pushing them around the edge of that thicket they're they're dipsy dealing around the does running a figure eight all around through there there may be another buck trying to come in there well if you're right there on the edge of that right there i mean you know you're just in a hub for for bucks to come back and forth and those bucks are they want to travel that thicker area. They want to travel the edge of that. They want to look for those does that are trying to hide off in there, scent check them and stuff like that. So, like, anytime you can get a travel corridor between bedding thickets, when a buck loses a doe or when a buck's chasing a doe, that's a lot of times where they're going to go. And so you want to be right there. And you know, you've got the travel corridors from bedding to food, but during the rut, I'm more focused on bedding. Okay. So in a flatland situation – what what might a bedding area like you mentioned like the blowdown so it's just blowed out just thick stuff i guess yeah so like like for instance I'll, i'll use the row crop property for instance um so there's like a there's like some really really big fields that i've it's not crp but it's if you think of a crp field that's what these are they're fields that i've just periodically burned they're brushy they're not pretty they're they're thick there's some cedars scattered through there there's some little trees and little plum thickets and stuff like that but it's a lot of grasses just a big area of a bedding thicket to hunt that bedding thicket would be very very hard because you don't really know where to be they could be anywhere well then there's another one that's you know in, there, there's a little bit of just a strip in between there and another one that opens up in really big it's like big hourglass shape well right there at the where those hourglass come together there's a little small strip 50 yards that they've got to cross to get to the other one and they want to get to the other one because there's 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 going to be deer in both of them and if you slip into the side of that little hourglass and set right there there's, there's bucks will start tr- cruising through there a lot of times on up in the morning something like 9 30 10 o'clock 11 o'clock by the time you're ready to get down those bucks start getting up and cruising back and forth to those two bedding areas and so you're you're right there waiting for that buck to just come and i mean you better not be on your phone because a lot of times they're trotting across it they're they're moving pretty quick across there but that's mm-hmm. you're just keying in on those little spots those bucks want to go check for more does what about the uh the tree farm property like let's say a place that it's maybe not cattle maybe it's not row crop but it's pine trees. I think you mentioned you had a property like that. Um, how might it be different on a property like that where the, a lot of times those pines are kind of thick, you know, underneath? That's a lot tougher. Yeah. That's a lot tougher because you've got just so many vague areas. Oh, um, yeah. But you... That's but a great word, too. They're they're all vague, and that that's probably the hardest to hunt, in my opinion. I mean, I my least favorite place to hunt is a gigantic pine plantation. But where I look for on those places are transitions. So maybe you've got a different stage. Um, pines, right? Like you get small pines, big pines. Those are those are transitions I look for. Um, some little riparian buffers, you know, or SMZ zones, stuff like that. Those are some areas to look for. Um, even food plots. A lot of times you can use food plot to pinch deer down because a lot of times those bucks aren't necessarily going on the food plot. But they're going to run the back side of it and check it. They're going to they're going to try to cover as much ground possible 
and stay hidden the whole entire time. So you may be sitting on a food plot looking towards the pines. You never see any of these deer. 50 yards back in the woods is where it's all happening. They're all running around the backside of it. They're scent checking it. And a lot of times they're smelling you if you're not <laughs> careful. And you never even know the deer was there. You sit all day and you don't see a deer. Well, that's because they were just right there inside the woods and they, they're they traveling behind it. They're trying to stay covered and check as many areas as they can. Yeah, man, I got a spot just like that that I tried to hunt last year. I tried to slip up the backside on it and those pines were so thick that I could not get within 150 yards of that food plot so this summer i'm going to cut a trail in there so i can i can take advantage of something like that but i was curious about that from the because that's how my club sets up it's a it's a pine pine plantation the whole thing i mean they cut right down to the creeks in a lot of spots yeah. not that that many hardwoods a lot of thick stuff um but i mean i know there's good bucks on the place we found a pretty big deadhead like the first time we went out there like a pretty nice buck um, and I just haven't haven't put enough time into it yet, but I'm trying to find some spots like that that I that I'm going to be able to hunt for years to come. Because I, I think a big highlight of this conversation is like it's not like a one year thing, you know, yeah. to, to achieve that higher level of success. Like it has to compound over years, and you got to figure spots out and put years into figuring them out, and then you can you know reap the benefits over time. Yeah, I'm probably slower and less aggressive than a lot of people do. I. You know, I like to find a spot and homestead from public land. I go to one gate. I don't worry about anything. I, f- I learned that whole entire gate. I learned that whole entire spot. I figure it all out. I may hunt three or four different locations just kind of see how deer act. And I, I like to stay back and not try to be right on top of them the first time I hunt. Unless I just know that I know that I know. But a lot of times I want to I want to observe how deer use the property, observe how they're using those areas. And then when it, the weather's right, that's when I go in and go for the kill. And this is something I wanted, that was a good segue that I want to talk about. Again, a lot of people are hearing the conversation, oh, this guy's got some awesome private land, hold on yards because I hunt it. Well, recently you start getting into some public land hunting, okay? and had some really good success killing some really nice old mature bucks on public land uh as i guess a way to challenge yourself but also to kind of spite people that were saying you know <laughs> you know maybe at church we were like oh man this guy's just got some primo property and that's why he's killing all these freaking you know absolute top echelon deer in, in alabama well, i heard he shot him on high fence yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but um i want to talk a little bit about that and, and again just how you've gone about hunting that public kind of like what you're sta- saying like scouting and learning the area observing and kind of moving in for the kill because that's the cool thing about you is like you've been able to translate what you've been doing on the private land hunting to public land where you don't get to be able to manage habitat you don't get to like necessarily do a bunch of pre-hung stand sets or anything like that uh but let's talk a little bit more about like that journey of how you kind of moved not exclusively in a public but started kind of focusing a little bit on public as well as almost as a way to kind of add uh more variety to your hunting but you're still able to capitalize you know hunting with a bow killing some really good deer doing that uh and some older deer too so i mean what was like the the when you first decided to go do this again i think you said like four years ago or five that was last year it was last year was the first time well listen all right well you you learn quick (laughs) and you learn very quick so with you starting to do this last year when you had the goal like hey i'm gonna go kill a buck in public okay what was like your first steps of like the first things you were going to go do? You're talking about you, you went to a certain gate. I guess you kind of liked what was behind it habitat wise, but like day one when you went out there, I mean, were you scouting? Was it preseason? Was it during season? Well, so day one when I went out there last year, my buddy um, that hunts with me a lot, he actually won a truck too on AON. 
with the deer he killed on my farm. But uh, he had he was wanting to pay me back, you know. So he I was actually down in South Alabama. He, he texted, hey, man, I just saw a really, really, really good buck. And uh, I, he's like, and I'd already been telling him, I was like, man, when you, when you want to go to the refuge, I want to go hunt the refuge with you. And he says, so he found this deer. And uh, I told him, I said, look, I don't care anything about being on that deer. I just want to hunt with you. And uh, he said, well, we're going to go in this gate. So I just start studying maps. I start studying maps. I'm looking at everything. I'm step back. Look, what what's going on here? And I saw this little spot, and I said, hey, man, what about this area? Is it good? We're going to go in there in the morning on a, you know, I was going in there blind. And mm-hmm. I said, what do you think about this area? He's like, yeah, it's, it's got some trees in there you can climb. I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to try to go. Because I was going way past him. And uh, so I go in there. It gets daylight. I shot a deer. And uh, I get down. I'm like, oh, my gosh, dude, this is the X. Like, this is his spot. He goes, well, I saw him back this way. I'm like, dude, he's going through here, like, a lot. And uh, so I said, we got to get back in here, like, this week. I said, he, it's hot. And so we go back in there. We hunt one more morning. I saw a bunch of deer. And uh, we still didn't see the buck again. And I said, man, I really feel like it's going to happen this afternoon. I was like, it's, the conditions just set up. I said, it's going to happen this afternoon. He goes, all right, let's go again. So we went back that afternoon. And in that same spot, the deer steps out. I see him crossing. And I was mother, one of my other keys is 90% of the bucks I kill, I grunt in. I always want to be set up to where I can blow a grunt call. The deer cannot see into or through or around where I'm sitting. I want the deer to have to come look for what made the sound. Like if you're if you ever been in wide open hardwoods and you set up in a tree, you see a buck and you call at him and he's standing there from 50 yards and he can see 100 yards past you, that deer is most likely not coming up in there. But if you're set up over some structure or around some thick stuff or a bedding thicket or something like that, well, that deer can't see through that bedding area. He's going to have to try to circle downwind of you. If you've got something where he can't really circle downwind of you, he's probably just going to walk right straight up in there where he can see down in there. So anyways, that's what happened here. The deer was not going to come in range of me. But I was on his ex. I was on a spot he liked to be. And so when I called to him, he bristled up. I mean, came running in, ears pinned back, and 25-yard shot right through the pumping station. And so my buddy told me about the deer, and he put me on the deer. But I found the ex that he wanted to be and where he wanted to go. And I was in a position where I could call to him, and he was like, oh, no, who is in my spot, you know? So taking that, going back to that same public land but a different spot, I was like, I want to learn this spot. And I, I hunted it quite a bit, killed a doe in there, one of the first hunts I was on. And uh, just you know, took my time tr- checking every little every little nook and cranny of the whole spot, and it was a pretty big spot, and it was a heavily, heavily, heavily pressured spot. I mean, four or five trucks. I would get there first and come back, and there'd be four or five trucks in there after me. I mean, every day uh, there was. I, I think it got hunted a lot on the days it wasn't supposed to get hunted, but <laughs> but uh, that's how that's how pressured this spot was. And so, like, I was kind of watching how people would hunt it and watching what people would do. And I'm like, man, that's a great spot, but dude, why is he going in there? Like, he's messing that whole spot up. And I would literally sit there a lot of midday hunts, and people get ready to leave, and dude, push deer to me all the time, like. These deer were just, they knew how people accessed, and they were watching that. 
And so I kind of use that to my advantage. And like, well, where are these people going? Where are they hunting the most? I'm gonna, I want to hunt somewhere totally different. Spots that people weren't really hunting. And uh, finally honed in on a deer that I wanted to kill and, and uh, found the spot that I wanted to do it and the, started getting right. I jumped in there and killed him. And uh, he did exactly like what the other deer did. He was chasing he he was chasing a doe or something and i just heard something snap behind me i was actually looking at a different buck and that was chasing a doe and i was grunting at it trying to get whatever was behind me to come check it out well sure enough out of nowhere here he come running right straight in i almost didn't have time to get my bow ready and uh i shot him and and same kind of situation it's just like you know you've got to you got to be set up in a space that a deer can't see through or around or to and they're not going to come downwind to check it they're just going to rush right in there uh, so we, there's so much to talk Ooh, about man. This. yeah um <laughs> that first deer you killed the one that you know your buddy had talked about and you, you decided to kind of go to a different portion of the public compared to like where he was at and you said you found the x what told you it was the spot that that buck wanted to use or had been using especially well, if it was kind of far from where you said your buddy saw it the was like 300 yards okay it wasn't terribly far and in fact he came out of the same bedding area that he had seen him before but he he wasn't using the same trail he saw him before because he was hunting right where he saw him before like and he almost killed him that day he had him like 55 60 yards like he was close yeah well what i saw there was just a travel corridor like a lot of different just transitions like several different features that just like man that's just like a buck buck area like i love different stage timber different field edges and and all that stuff was coming together right there and when i got in there and you know i climbed a tree in the dark and i looked i was looking around i'm like scrape 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 and then like oh my gosh rub 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 like good rubs like fresh rubs like good trees like he was like tearing it up right there he it's like a hub like he wanted everybody to know that was coming through that little travel corridor that hey i'm the I'm the alpha right here. Y'all better stay out of my spot. And whenever I was set up in his spot and he heard that grunt, he was like, oh, no. And, I mean, it was I was aggressive. With it. I, was, I mean, I buck roared. I buck roared nearly all of them up. But he, he didn't like it. I mean, he came running in. So... You just have to you just have to look for those little those little things and 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 know that you want to the right deer you can make mad he can't resist it. Man, that's uh, so it's funny, man. The buck roar thing, I I'm, I'm always like, oh, I don't know if that'll work down here. Oh, the only people who works. say it doesn't work are the people who don't kill giant deer. <laughs> <laughs> Our buddy Clifton Denny, who's been on the podcast a couple times, he talks about he's from Arkansas and he came down here to Alabama hunted you know the this kind of region the state and had tremendous success doing like what you're talking about being aggressive calling uh you know he loves the buck roar and it's like again you see a lot of people do it on outdoor television and i feel like a lot of people do it around here on younger age class deer and that's why they get a negative response or they're in an area that mature bucks truly not using a whole bunch or he's not comfortable at and I feel like what you're talking about, if you're getting in his bubble in an area that he's already super comfortable, he's using it, he's got the thick cover, he can't see really well, but he's that upper echelon age class buck. Like yeah. he's not a he's not a three year old, he's not a four year old, he's a five, six, seven, eight year old deer. And you do something like that and the timing's right, like that the time of the year's right, yes. you really have that dial. That's key. It's like, okay, you flip a switch and make it happen. I was listening to another podcast, uh, the Ozark podcast. Um, the guys up in uh, they're up in Arkansas. 
And they had a dude on that talked tremendously about this. He's like, dude, he's like, if you don't grunt, he's like, you're not, he's like, you go into turkey, you you call turkeys, you go elk hunting, you're calling elk. Why would you call deer deer are constantly making vocalizations and like those mature bucks, at least up there in the Ozarks and the mountains are extremely aggressive during the right few days of the season. And he's like, if you time it right, you'll have tremendous success. And the guy they they interviewed talked about that. Uh, I can't remember I can't, Brad something. I can't remember his name. Uh, we may try to get him on the podcast, uh, talk a little bit more about it. But it's like when people hear about calling aggressively, because we know some guys that are super successful killing big bucks, but they like, I don't ever call. Like I don't want to know that I don't want the deer to know I was there and all this kind of stuff. But then you have guys like yourself and other guys that we've interviewed that's like complete opposites. Like, dude, if I'm in the right situation, the timing's right, and the buck's there, I'm in I'm in his comfort zone. It's like why not? Especially if you're bow hunting. Well, there's a little bit of art to it. Like you don't just go and buck roar around. Like you're not I'm not buck roaring out blindly. Like I won't buck roar unless I see have eyes on the deer. Um or at least know the deer's where he is because i don't want to buck roar a deer and it not be able to see it and he circled downwind of me so a lot like for instance that deer that was on on that public you know my first note's not a buck roar my first note is just a see if he responds sometimes they respond to that that's all you need to do sometimes it's and they respond to that well sometimes that stops them sometimes if sometimes they don't even care they like they don't even hear it other times, maybe they're running. Mm-hmm. Um, the buck roar is just like to get their attention, and then they stop, put their tracks on. Then you like it's you. You have to kind of play off the deer. Like you see the deer. Like I, I, I want to see the deer. I want to know how he reacts. I want to know what his demeanor is to whether or not I'm gonna buck roar at him. And so a lot of times, if you you see that they 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 kind of got mad when you just did that little grunt at them. But they're, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to come that way. Then you buck roar at them. That's usually when they just, oh, shoot, I got to get there. And they haul off running as hard as they can go right straight into your setup. And I guess that's also another portion about doing it when you can see them. But, again, having thick cover around you because if he's that close, especially if you're in the timber, you can't see 100 yards. So he's inside 100 yards to you. It's hard for him to be able to circle you if he's that close. It's another thing if he hears you from 250 yards away. And then he's like, okay, I heard something. Let me start circling and kind of yeah. ease my way over there, dogleg and whatever people want to call it, um, to get into that spot. Versus if he's that if he's that tight, you know, within, say, 100 yards. And, again, we're not rifle hunting. We're talking bow hunting specifically here. Or maybe maybe rifle hunting if you just can't get a good shot out. Maybe he's into some thick stuff. To have him break, I, that makes a lot of sense. And also, do you have any – so I've heard of other guys talk about, and this is kind of interesting because that guy Brad I'm, I'm thinking of from this other podcast – He's the kind of guy, and he talked about. He's like, I grunt at that deer. If I see him, he's like, like you said, I want to see him, and I'll grunt at him until and sound realistic and everything. His whole thing is about being realistic and not just doing some crazy stuff, but being realistic, buck roar and everything else, where it makes sense. You know, you got to be close to a doe bedding area. You got to be close to like something that tells that that buck's truly going to be on a doe uh, or fighting another buck, and. uh and almost like reeling him in with those grunts. Yeah. It's not just like you grunt once or twice and that's it. It's, it's like, just like turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. Just like turkey hunting. I mean, you're, 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 you know, they're not responding back a lot of times, but although that, that really old, that nine, nine year old deer that I killed two years in a row, I got a buck roar contest with that deer. Like I would buck roar, he'd buck roar back at me. I'm talking about not just two or three times, like 10 or 15 times. And, I mean, it just got so close to killing him, just didn't. I mean, just didn't have the right 
the right angle or a tree was in the way or something every single time but yeah it's you got to you got to think about it like turkey and, and i'm directional with it like i don't just sit there and blow right straight at the deer like if i know my winds say coming to my right and i want that deer to think i'm to the left i'm blowing off to the left not you know right at the deer i want that deer to think he's got to get that way a little bit and he's actually trying to get downwind of the sound and i am instead where he's mm. trying to get so you're trying to use the wind you're trying to use you know your train your thicket or whatever it is in your favor to make him think i'm over there he's going to come downwind of over there and he's going to be right in my my wheelhouse now talk about you got to talk about the timing though like the timing of like when this is effective because it's not like you're doing this all season long it probably is a very it's short window that it's right around the rut pre-rut yeah peak rut post rut is about the only time this works okay yeah and i guess also it's like reading that demeanor that deer like when you see that deer like is that a mature buck and is it potentially a dominant buck for the yes. area yes because i mean you can absolutely mess them up i mean there, there's some deer that just they're not fighters they're not brawlers they're you know they're they're more docile they're more you know lean back buck roar is not going to work on that deer but you know your first couple of small grunts are going to show you I mean, just reading deer, reading their body language and everything are going to show you what type of, of of demeanor they're going to have, if they're going to be mad or if they're going to be like, yeah, I don't know. So you just kind of have to read the, the body language of the deer to know whether you go with the buckler or not. Is there anything that kind of characteristic, especially maybe what they do with their ears or how yeah. they put their head up? I mean, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're kind of you see their hair kind of bristle up a little bit or, you know, their, their, their head kind of, they start posturing a little bit. That's when you hit them with that buck roar and they're just like oh i'm coming now do you ever do it where you'll see a buck that maybe you're like oh man is he mature is like he's probably mature you do it and like he throws that head up but his eyes get real wide or something like that like maybe it's like not like a, a positive sign like i'm sure you've had some where it's like oh yeah it, it, i don't call in every single one of them yeah i mean you're gonna have times where it's kind of a last resort like if if you know that hey it, nothing else has worked you're, you're not gonna kill that deer try it i mean you're not gonna I've I've usually not ever ran them off with it, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, interesting. The uh, yeah, the grunting's so interesting, uh, and it's like I've heard more snort wheeze from Alabama deer in the past two years than I ever have previously. But it's because of where and how we've changed and been hunting. Yeah, in around those thick doe bedding areas where the bucks are pushing does earlier in the season, uh, and, and actually seeing them snort wheeze and hearing them snort wheeze and snort wheezing at them and watching their body language, those mature bucks, and do the hair like the, the deer I killed when we were hunting the mountains in Alabama. Um, he was bumping a doe coming up through the saddle, real thick nasty spots up in the tree. And I could see his rat come through the woods, and I saw he's the solid doe in front of him. And he was kind of like stiff legging, kind of like behind the doe, like matching her her pace. And like once or twice, he would turn and start running back down the hill. I'm like, what is he doing? And he'd like get out of sight, and he'd come back. And I can't see him very well. I could see his antlers from like 80 yards away, like 80, 90 yards away, coming up the ridge. And he'd start coming back up again. He'd do it again. He'd like run back down the hill. I'm like, what is he doing? And I didn't realize afterwards there was another buck behind him yeah. that he was trying to keep off her. Yep. Well, he does it again. He starts coming back up, and I can tell. He's like, you can tell by his posture, and he's, he's aggressive. So I'm like, dude, I'm going to snort wheeze at this deer. Snort wheeze at him. And, dude, second I snort wheeze at him, he lays those ears back, bristles up, and he starts kind of doing that, like, side leg yeah. dog walk between, like, she that doe's coming up. She's not coming directly at me. She's like a 45-degree angle coming up to my right. And he gets between her and me doing that whole that posturing kind of stays between nose down nose down yeah. head down kind of, oh, yeah. kind of like angle and you can see on the foot he's got his head kind of angled down kind of like side on yep. like coming between me and her and 
anyways, he gave me a great shot opportunity. I was able to kill him with a rifle at like probably 75 yards, 70, 80 yards. And, uh, it, it was just interesting kind of seeing that. And then the year previously had a buck, uh, another mature buck I killed on another piece of public land running a doe. So there's two bucks on this doe. There was a probably three year old chasing this doe that was clearly in heat and this big, this this other older buck was on his butt, dude, trying to get antlers in his butt, dude, yeah. running them. They ran in the stick it down below me and it kind of got quiet for a second. And like you hear grunting and just the whole nine yards and all of a sudden you hear, and he did like two or three times. And I'm like, Oh, cr-. I'm like, okay. And like, I didn't even think about snort wheezing back at him, but I had the gun up. It was another gun hunt. And the second that doe, she came back out of that thick stuff, dude. She just came, I mean, flying out. And that, that big mature buck, he stepped out and just stopped for like a fraction of a second more than he should have. A shot, he, he, <laughs> he, he went down. Didn't but, work out for him. But, it, yeah. but it's cool, like actually seeing some of that vocalizations and actually seeing like how those mature bucks react to some of that stuff when the timing's right. Because again, if you were in there a month before the rut, probably not going to happen. No, He's probably like, what? Not. He's like, what's going? What is that? But it's like if you time it right, and especially kind of that earlier part of the I think that earlier part of the rut when those first couple of does come to heat, I feel like, dude, that's something I'm definitely going to focus more on this year. Yeah, uh, on some of our hunts. Well, also, I I don't know about y'all, but I felt like growing up, a lot of the guys I grew up hunting around were like, man, I never hear grunts. Like nobody ever heard grunts. Like if you heard a deer grunt, it was like a big deal. Kind of like you're talking about with the deer track back in the day. You go back to camp, you're like, I heard one grunt. Everyone's like, no way, really? And I think that that's changed so much for us in the last couple of years because of how we've been hunting, you know? Yeah. Like we're hunting in the places that they do that kind of stuff. It's that's like, right. he's not going to walk out in a food plot and just be grunting around most likely. You, you know? Yeah. You're not going to hear a lot of buck roars out on a food plot. No, I no. Mean, that's, that's the thing that that buck roar is so distinct and it's so cool when it happens in the woods. And I mean, it's, they're not, they're they're not quiet with it. They're loud and they're aggressive with it. How long after I snort wheezed when we were in South Alabama on that SOA hunt did that the buck I shot come in? Because I was snort wheezing. I was blind call snort wheezing because we had men- we had talked to a guy that did that. I don't know. I'd have to look at the footage. It wasn't long. It wasn't that well because it was only an hour between when I shot mine and you shot yours. And we had a hot doe in there. Had a doe get bred in front of us. Five bucks on her. This one buck fought off all the other four bucks. Bred her and then a bigger buck ran him off. It was crazy. Andrew Dang. shot. Andrew shoots one of them. And then I'm like, dude, I'm going to start snort wheezing because I'm like, there's a hot doe here. There's yeah. like a ton of bucks around. And I start snort wheezing. I probably snort wheeze, I don't know, the matter of 15, 20 minutes, probably five or six times. And not very long afterwards, that, the buck I shot, he came through, head up, big or mature buck came through, slipping there, and he got shot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's it's crazy. Like, if you get in those little pockets, and again, it kind of comes back to like what we were talking about earlier, is you got to find those areas that those mature bucks feel comfortable moving through, but it's got the does, it's got the travel cord, it's got everything you're needing. It's not like you walk into wide open river bottom or like, you know, timber company or timberland where it's just wide open stuff. Like there's gotta be a reason that mature bucks there. And it's kind of funny. Like you hear guys talk about, when we, we've interviewed dudes or not, you know, well, maybe interviewed, but I know some guys personally who's shot big mature bucks for whatever reason, cruising through wide open timber, not using any kind of thick stuff, but during the rut, like they're just trying to take that shortcut yeah. from one thick to other thicket, and they're not taking like the path. They're they're taking the path of re- least resistance, but it's through wide. I mean, wide open timber. I yeah, mean, pines you can see 150 yards through. But it's like during that time of the year when they are just trying to go from point A to point B as quick as they can to get to the next spot. And it's like other than that little time of the year when they're like making that, like you've got to be in and around that thick stuff that they're the most comfortable cruising through and making the, make those movements where you can kind of get an opportunity at them. Yeah. You're not going to be consistent. I mean, there'll be deer like across this wide open field right here. 
and and then the rut like you know but you're not going to be consistent killing them in areas like that down on the row crop property there's there's just areas where you can literally see a mile you're going to see some deer cross that area but you're not going to be consistent you're never going to be on the right spot at the right time when they're doing that but when you're on those bedding thickets and if you can't find them on your property go create them yeah go make them go find those spots and like create it and make it a hub for bucks to cruise and travel down um and so like that's that's what's key is when you're on those spots you're going to be a lot more consistent you're going to have a lot better hunts you're going to have you know more exciting hunts those hunts where where it's almost like elk hunting you know they're they're bugling and you're calling them and all that kind of stuff that's what's fun catch a mature deer doing all that putting on a show dude there's nothing greater to have a bow in your hand whenever all that happens oh, oh god absolutely no and uh that's a that's a good point it's like you gotta find or create those spots if you have access yeah, public land you just go find them private land go create them and you can be so much more specific on private land of where you're putting them mm. And see, that's why, so one thing that I want to, we talked about on the phone that we're going to work on and hopefully be able to film is try to have you come down and, and Kyle come down to my family farm and look at that place because it, it had been heavily cut. I told you it had been heavily cut about 12 to 15 years ago. Kind of na- naturally region. It's a hellhole. Uncle got a, uh, a mulching head on a, uh, actually not a mulching head, it's uh, that brush head on, on a skid steer and did some clearing work and stuff and wants to run fires through it. But he wants to do like what we're talking about like how can we set that property up for like some unbelievable bedding locations where you can have some of that action because he's never had that down there and, and also but he's got his own perspective about putting a lot more trees back on the landscape and that's why we want to ha- kind of have that conversation i think with him about let's leave it maybe a little bit more open and have more of that nat- native habitat and stuff that there's a ton of good food and cover but it, it makes a buck super comfortable moving through that yeah. habitat instead of having just a bunch of timber out there and uh, i feel like if if more and more people especially as like more of the stuff that's being showcased in like video format of like what this can look like on properties. I think more and more people will get excited about doing some of the stuff that we're talking about, right. especially if you have access to some private land, uh, whether it's through, you know, one thing I'd love to do at, at some point in the future, like we love hunting public land, but finding some, because can't really buy property right now, but if we could find a private landowner that, to lease property through that would let you do some of this stuff, because it's hard to do any of this through a timber company. Timber company leases, they're not going to let you touch most, right. much of that timber. Um, unless you are unless you can talk to them and tell them, hey, look, we need to knock out some invasives. We need to lock, knock out the, the trees that aren't going to bring you any value. Um, you may can go that route. I know the NRCS does cost share programs. That's what we do with a lot of our clients. Um, if they're wanting some TSI done, a lot of times you can go through the NRCS, get a cost share program to go in there and do the TSI. And you hire a crew to come in there and they cost share it. And then there you go. You've got better timber, more healthy timber. Your trees that are going to be your, your timber production trees are going to be healthier and grow and be ready to cut sooner. And at the same time, you're going to help habitat, help your hunting help the turkeys help the quail all of those things all in one thing you know you're gonna you're gonna do so much better then and enjoy your property even better absolutely awesome i i got one more question that that i I need to ask it's kind of going back a little bit but it kind of again goes back to the flatland travel corridors the buck hub thing that you were talking about where you shot those bucks on public um and specifically like timber transitions you got small timber transition to big timber so you're just are you looking for a lot of like linear edges that kind of run into each other because that kind of seems yeah. what i'm gathering yeah. so you're looking for a linear habitat edge whether it be a field edge a timber edge 
or something else, maybe the edge of a slough or something, uh, and trying to find where multiple of those come yes. together and hunting right there. Yep. But you just got to you got to have a place for your wind to blow to, whether that be open field, open timber, or whatever. You got to have you got to have that first of all. And if it's and if right there in all that X it doesn't work, then you're just going to find a leg left or right or you know in a different direction to where your wind will be safe. Um, but yeah, like field edges, brushy field going to timber or you know pines going to hardwoods or creek edge smz zone stuff like that is what i'm looking for okay it doesn't have to be in a straight line but a lot of times it is i mean the way land is broken up and segmented we've made straight lines out of everything property lines property lines are good transition zones Mm -hmm. i mean everybody knows property line that's where all the deer is going to be i mean (laughs) but that's that's why that's that's always been the case but well because that area has been treated differently so it's usually like somebody cut the timber on one side and didn't cut the other side i mean so you got thicker brushy stuff and then you got sunlight going through that thicker brushy stuff and then you got you know bigger hardwood trees but that little edge the sunlight got in there you know it's got waist tall you know grasses and weeds and forbs and stuff well there's food and cover all along that same line Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and they can move through it Mm-hmm. So, so it creates kind of like almost a soft edge too. Yeah, like, exactly. Like it's not just a bam. It's kind of like that feathered edge. That edge feathering. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Mm. I love it, dude. dude. I love it. I'm excited. Uh, Alan, real quick, if, if listeners had any other questions for you or even want to reach out to you about consultation, how would they get a hold of you? So you can get a hold of us with a Native Habitat Project. So hunt at Native Habitat Project is my email. Um, or you can contact Landon Legacy. I mean, if you're, there's a lot of fans on here probably listen to Landon Legacy. Well, I'm going to be the, the Southeast rep for Landon Legacy. So I'm uh, training with Adam and Matt and uh, learning everything that they do on, on how they write the management plans and everything. And, I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot of the work for a long time before I ever met them. But uh, so if anybody's interested here, you know, you're wanting to get some of this work done on your property but don't know how to go about it, um, we're the guys to contact. We're, we're huge on native habitat, and we're huge on making the land, you know, more huntable, more accessible, um, teaching you how to strategize where to put these thickets, how to um, access these thickets, how to, you know, set up your property to make it the most huntable it can be. But not only doing that, but also boosting wildlife and absolutely, and, and especially like we, what we've talked about, which is going to be a big storyline with our family property, is uh, hasn't been turkeys down there or hasn't been turkey killed there in over fifteen years. Hasn't been any heard or seen in about seven to ten years. And but there's turkeys in the general area, but it's it, that's one of the only properties that has some open ground around there, and, and kind of seeing like that transformation for other people's property too. Of like, if you want if you want turkeys back, you know you want better. At, deer habitat you know this is a great opportunity to be able to kind of you know discuss with someone like yourself to kind of figure out you know what options are available from a a private landowner or again if you have a lease land especially if you lease it through a private individual how you could have that conversation with somebody about embedding that habitat that property the timber management uh that makes everybody super happy right so absolutely awesome well alan greatly appreciate you joining us for the podcast it's been an awesome episode listeners if you've enjoyed it go leave us a uh, a five-star written review on apple Podcasts. we are quickly getting up to a thousand reviews uh hopefully try to break that thousand reviews by early summer if y'all would go leave us a review that'd be greatly appreciated also share this episode with a buddy uh especially if you got a buddy that maybe could uh really benefit from a conversation like this so thanks for everybody joining us and we'll catch y'all back here on the next episode from the southern outdoors podcast
All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.